London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Last week, Charles Ray Finch, who was exonerated and released from prison less than three years ago after serving 43 years for a crime he didn't commit, died at the age of 83 in Goldsboro, North Carolina. In his new book, American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System, David S. Rudolph one of the preeminent trial lawyers in this country, draws upon his four decades of experience in the American criminal justice system to examine the misconduct that often exists at all levels of law enforcement and traces the tragic consequences of innocent people caught up in a judicial system in desperate need of reform with a look at the role poverty and racism play in wrongful convictions. David Rudolph has taught at the University of North Carolina School of Law, Duke University School of Law, and the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. His book is published by Custom House, which is a division of HarperCollins, and he joins us now. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Early in the book, you write about a question that people ask almost every criminal defense lawyer. How can you represent those people? Beside the answer of everyone's entitled to a defense, you give a more personal reason. Can you discuss the importance of recognizing the humanity of your clients and, um, and the example you give of John William Rook? Well, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, uh, early in my career, I used the, uh, the sort of uh, trope answer that everybody deserves a defense and, uh, and uh, all I'm doing is uh, fulfilling the constitutional duty. But, but it's much, much deeper than that in truth. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, the, the notion is that uh, what I do is to take someone who has probably sunk to the lowest level of their life, has committed something that is the worst thing probably that they've ever done, and to try to humanize that person so that the prosecutor and the judge and, if necessary, a jury, understands sort of what that person's background was, what circumstances led them to that particular act, uh, and uh, what is the fair punishment for any particular act under any particular set of circumstances. That's really what criminal defense lawyers do. But, uh, but you're talking about uh, representing people who have committed crimes. How did you begin representing people you thought had been wrongly accused and wrongly convicted? Oh, well, that, that's, that's a whole another chapter in my life, mm. Leonard. Um, you know, in, in 2003, uh, I represented a man who I was absolutely convinced was innocent. Uh, the, uh, the case eventually found its way into a Netflix documentary called The Staircase. Hmm. Uh, in fact, they're making it into a, an HBO movie now, aren't they? A they dramatized version starring Colin Firth, Tony Collette, and, and Parker Posey. Exactly right. Uh, and in any event, that case really, uh, I guess, emphasized to me uh, what I had known for many years, which was there are abuses in the criminal justice system that result in innocent people being convicted. And in that particular case, it was uh, fake science. It was a blood spatter expert who was committing perjury. We eventually proved he had committed perjury eight years later. But my client had served eight years in prison as a result. And, and after that case, um, I really started uh, devoting myself to representing people uh, who had been wrongfully convicted. Uh, and so over the last 15 years or so, um, I have represented a number of people who have been exonerated. 
Sometimes I've worked on the exonerations themselves. Sometimes I've gotten involved after the exoneration. Uh, but the idea, uh, frankly, is to try to put lives back together uh, that have been totally obliterated by abuses in the system. Now, the numbers on wrongful convictions are stunning. Just in the past 30 years, nearly 2,800 people serving prison sentences in the U.S. have been exonerated and released with their combined jail sentences adding up to more than 25,000 years of prison time. And I'm assuming that there are many other cases and people still in prison who shouldn't be there. Leonard, that is the tip of the proverbial iceberg. Uh, You know, when you think about it, the people who had been exonerated first had to have the, have the uh, uh, perseverance to keep fighting. Then they had to find a lawyer uh, who was willing to take on a thankless task, often without any pay, uh, that would often last years. Uh, so that cut out a whole section of people. But isn't that and, where public defenders come into the story? Well. Well, except public defenders don't represent people who have already been convicted. For huh. the mo- now, there are there are innocence projects, which, you know, my friend Barry Sheck and, and mm-hmm. Peter Neufeld started in New York many years ago. Uh, and, and those have filled the gap. Uh, and that's that's critically important work that they do. Uh, but public defenders, generally speaking, are not handling uh, cases where someone has already been convicted and their appeal has been denied. Uh, And so, uh, you know, someone who's sitting in prison has to find a lawyer. Uh, Oftentimes they go to these innocence projects, but, you know, they're overworked and overwhelmed. Uh, Then you have to be lucky enough that the lawyer finds the evidence that he or she needs to exonerate you. And then that lawyer needs to be lucky enough to have a judge who's willing to listen to the evidence and actually think about uh, whether relief ought to be granted, as opposed to simply focusing in on the need for what they call finality. Well, generally speaking, how difficult is it to even get your case retried after you've been convicted? It is enormously difficult. The, the hurdles are, uh, are just unbelievable. And indeed, uh, President, uh, uh, I'm blanking on his name now, uh, uh, Clinton, uh, in, in 19, uh, I guess, uh, 94, 95, uh, passed legislation that made it even harder uh, to get relief uh, after you've been convicted. Uh, so it's not a liberal thing or a conservative thing. It's, it's really a question of people wanting finality in the system uh, and not really caring uh, if that means that people who have been wrongfully convicted end up serving sentences that they shouldn't. Are there basic flaws in the system, and are they unique to the United States? Well, first of all, the basic flaw, I suppose, is that it's run by people. Uh, and people <laughs> well, But have, that's the case everywhere. Absolutely. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, the problem is that people have what's called confirmation bias. <laughs> all of us have it. Uh, All of us suffer from it, uh, and uh, we all have to do our best to resist it. The problem is that when police officers get on a scene, uh, what they are uh, uh, looking at, generally speaking, is what they believe happened. Uh, You know, they're they're not really there to investigate uh, all the facts. 
They are there to solve a case, and they have certain theories when they come upon a crime scene uh, that, uh, that are the result of their experiences. So they form a theory, and then tunnel vision or confirmation bias kicks in. Uh, and when that happens, uh, then they ignore the evidence or the facts that are inconsistent with their theory. They focus on the facts that support their theory. Uh, and at that point, the train starts running down the track. Uh, and it's very, very hard to stop that train once it gets past the initial stages of the investigation. And, because and, the, and sometimes isn't evidence of innocence concealed? You open your book with the story of Ed Friedland, who came home one night in 1990 to find that his wife had been viciously slain. And he was charged with the murder, uh, even though he was a respected surgeon. Uh, you wound up uh, representing him? I did. Uh, and, and he was eventually exonerated. The charges against him were dismissed, but not before his life was ruined. His medical practice was put into shambles and he had to move it to another state. And, and that's something that happens a lot. You know, and again, it's 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 the result of tunnel vision. So what happens in that case and in many cases is that the police focus in on a suspect. They focused on Ed because he had had an affair with a nurse. Uh, there was another suspect who had incredible uh, evidence against him, just, uh, you know, piles and piles and piles of evidence that the police ended up ignoring. Uh, so once they decided that Ed was the guy, uh, they simply ignored all the facts that were inconsistent with Ed's uh, uh, guilt uh, and innocence and focused in on the facts that they thought would convict him. And they hid from the district attorney all of the evidence against this alternative suspect, who was a crack addict who had been at the house and who everybody knew was in the neighborhood that night uh, and uh, was begging for money. So I don't understand. You say that the police are, are, are not uh, setting out generally to frame innocent people, and yet here they ignored what seems pretty clear to be uh, uh, a, a clear case against this other person. Right. And they did it not because not because they thought they were framing Ed Friedland. Uh, they did it because they became convinced that Ed Friedland was guilty. And the reason they became convinced of that was because he had had an affair. There was no hmm. other evidence in the case against Ed Friedland. You know, the reality was Ed had been at a hospital from 8 a.m. in the morning until he came home at 10 p.m. that night yeah. to find his wife brutally murdered. So there was, must have been eyewitnesses uh, to his presence in the hospital. Oh, absolutely. I, it, there, there was no doubt. It was documented in the medical records that he was there. He could not have committed that crime between 8 a.m. and 10 p.m. So what did the police do? They went and got a medical examiner. Uh, who happened to be from New York, not from North Carolina, who was willing to offer an opinion based on dubious science that she had been killed prior to 8 a.m. That was the evidence that they relied upon to convince the district attorney to indict Ed Friedland while hiding from the district attorney all of the evidence that pointed to Marion Anthony Gales, who was a crack addict who had a history of violence against women, and who was seen in the neighborhood that very night. 
They never told the DA about that evidence because they knew the DA would have to turn it over to Ed's defense lawyer. So, you know, it was a combination of both junk science, fake science, and hiding exculpatory evidence that resulted in Ed Freeland being indicted and facing a death penalty until finally we found the exculpatory evidence that had been hidden and we exposed the medical examiner uh, and the uh, and the falseness of his uh, opinion and the judge dismissed the case. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is David S. Rudolph, who's written a book called American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System. Uh, you, uh, you mentioned uh, confirmation bias as one of the factors, but some of the others you list are... Um, resorting to highly unreliable forensic disciplines such as uh, bite marks and microscopic microscopic hair comparison analysis to uh, implicate suspects and and fabricating or planting evidence for the purpose of implicating a suspect in a crime. So they aren't the police or whoever's doing that engaging performing a criminal act. Well, you know, it's interesting when when they do that in cases where they actually believe the person is guilty, uh, it's called noble cause corruption, Hmm. which is really just another way of saying the ends justify the means. Uh, So, for example, uh, in uh, a case that I handled, uh, Tim Bridges, which is discussed in the book, Uh, The police became convinced based on snitches testimony, which itself was unreliable, that Tim Bridges had committed a brutal murder. Uh, The D.A. would not indict based on those uh, snitches testimony because they were unreliable. So what did the police do? They went to their forensic person and had the forensic person examine a hair found at the scene and matched it, quote unquote, to Tim Bridges. Based on that hair comparison and that hair comparison alone, Tim Bridges was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. He did 26 years. Wow. And then and then the FBI suddenly realized that hair comparison is not reliable. How did they realize that? They realized it because there were all these cases turning up where DNA evidence had indicated that People who had been matched uh, to crime scenes, in fact, were excluded by DNA evidence. And they suddenly went back and looked at these things. And the FBI suddenly determined, wait a minute, this hair evidence, you can't really match somebody. The best you could say is, well, this hair could have come from that person. And all of a sudden, all of these cases needed to be looked into and reversed. And that's what happened to Tim Bridges. We reversed his conviction. Uh, He was exonerated uh, and we sued the hair examiner uh, for having falsified his report. Uh, So, again, it's not that the police are setting out to frame an innocent person. It's really that they're setting out to frame someone who they believe to be guilty. And, you know, that's where we get into noble cause corruption and the ends justifying the means. Does DNA continue to be a leading factor in proving that people were wrongfully convicted? Absolutely. So Uh, do we know how many prisoners have been exonerated as a result of DNA testing alone? 
Well, uh, I'm not sure exactly how many of the 2,800 have been exonerated on that basis alone, but I can tell you that it's a substantial portion because that's the, the easiest route, if you will, to exonerate somebody. It's not foolproof uh, because the police will come back and say, well, yeah, his, his DNA isn't there or her DNA isn't there, but that's because there was a second suspect. Uh, but generally speaking, DNA evidence is used in probably a vast majority of cases uh, to get exonerations. But the problem is that there isn't DNA evidence in the vast majority of cases. You know, if it's a, a shooting case, a murder case, uh, you know, a, a case of, of somebody dying uh, as a result of a knife attack, there may not be DNA evidence to analyze. And that's where the, the hard work begins for these innocence projects, because they have to go back in and dig up the files and interview the witnesses and find out exactly where that case went off the rails. What other technology is being used to overturn wrongful convictions that are allowed by the courts? You, you know, I don't think there's very many technologies that are being used. I think what's actually happening is that the science that has been used, so-called science that has been used to convict people, uh, has now been shown to be a sham. Uh, and so cases that have been based on things like hair analysis or bite mark evidence uh, or uh, tire tracks or footwear impressions, uh, all of those. Well, blood splatter. Blood splatter, <laughs> exactly. Which is one uh, of the, your cases. Oh, that, well, that was the case in, in, in the uh, documentary that was mm. made into the staircase. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, all of those sciences have now been exposed uh, as as really worthless. They give you a little bit of insight, but not very much. You know, it, it's sort of like, well, this could have happened, but maybe something else happened. Uh, and so as a result of that, cases that have been based on those uh, forensic uh, uh, experts, so to speak, uh, have now been opened up uh, and judges are more willing to consider uh, that the, that evidence is not terribly reliable. Uh, and when you couple that with uh, other evidence that the person didn't do it, alibi evidence or other sorts such evidence, uh, that's where cases are starting to get overturned. But haven't prosecutors and judges often resisted overturning convictions based on new scientific evidence um, or, or proof of misconduct by police or prosecutors? Yes, and, and, and that's because in our system, uh, we value finality over truth or justice. And that is a sad truth in our system. You know. Uh, Actual innocence, proof of actual innocence in most jurisdictions is not sufficient to get a conviction vacated. You have to show that there was some procedural defect uh, that uh, adversely affected the outcome. So I can come into court, Leonard, with evidence uh, that absolutely establishes that somebody is innocent. But unless I can tie that to something like they were hit, they were hiding exculpatory evidence, or they falsified a confession, or some other uh, misconduct or violation of constitutional rights, most jurisdictions will not give that person relief. Why? Because we need to be respectful of finality. 
Finality is a value in and of itself in our system. Uh, and, and that's just wrong. You know, innocence should trump anything. Uh, and, uh, and finality is important in some circumstances, uh, but not where someone's innocence is at stake. Well, to somebody who's not involved in the system like me, the idea that somebody uh, has been convicted for uh, of a crime that he or she didn't commit and is uh, spending a long time in prison or may even be executed is, is shocking. But it doesn't. Why is finality? Why does finality trump that in the courts? Uh, because. Uh Judges and prosecutors are afraid that if they don't focus on finality, as they put it, the floodgates will open. Everybody will be coming into court. The courts will be overwhelmed uh, by people coming in and claiming innocence. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's purely a question of, uh, you know, resources, you know, we can't possibly process all of these people time and time and time again. The system will break down if we don't really elevate finality as a goal in and of itself, because it's hard enough to process these cases the first time. And if we have to process them again and again, then the whole system is going to crash. And I think that at a fundamental level, is why finality is given such importance in our justice system. What percentage of those wrongfully convicted are poor, black, and living in the rural South? You're, you're, uh, you're from the North, but you've pra done most of your law practice in the South. Yeah, and, and I can say that... The Does it matter? Uh, uh, well, of course it matters. Uh, you know, it, now, I have to say that I think what matters most is poverty and race as opposed to geography. So, you know, there are, there are uh, every bit as many wrongful convictions in Chicago as there are in Birmingham, Alabama, probably more. Uh, but, you know, that's a function of who is in charge of the police department uh, and what kind of training they've had. Uh, but it is undeniable that people of color uh, and poor people uh, are, are convicted of things they didn't do far more frequently. And let me give you just an example on a, on a sort of much less serious level. Uh, you know, let's, let's take New York City, for, exa for example. Uh, people in the past were, would have been uh, arrested for shoplifting or loitering or petty larceny. And they'd have a bond set of whatever, $100, $200, $500. They couldn't make the bond. And so they sat at Rikers or wherever. Uh, and at some point, uh, a prosecutor would approach their lawyer and say, listen, uh, if, uh, if your client will just plead guilty, uh, he can, we'll, we'll let him out on time served. You know, we'll let him out today if he pleads guilty. But if he doesn't, and he wants a trial, I really can't tell you when we're going to get to that trial. So why don't you go to your client and see if he's willing to plead guilty and, and be sentenced to time served? Well, I can tell you, Leonard, that I've done that. Hmm. And it's the rare client in faced with that situation who wants to sit in jail and continue to assert his innocence. 
and so in that situation, many, many hundreds, if not thousands of people enter a guilty plea to something that they deny just to get out of jail. Uh, again, it's wrong. Uh, it's based on poverty and race. Uh, it's based on the fact that the justice system uh, is, is skewed towards those who are wealthy. Uh, but that's the reality in big cities, whether it's north or south. Although you do point out that wealthy people also are sometimes wrongfully convicted. They pr probably just um, have uh, better legal, uh, they have better lawyers, so uh, it's less likely. But what percentage of those wrongfully convicted are, uh, well, uh, uh, people of color compared to whites? Well, I think it, it probably mirrors the, the statistics generally uh, of the numbers of people in prison who are uh, of color versus whites. And I think the latest statistics was, you know, something like 70 uh, percent or so of people who are incarcerated in our prisons are people of color. Uh, it may even be higher than that. Uh, and it certainly exceeds their percentage in the population. Uh, and, and that's in large measure due to the drug wars, which targeted, uh, you know, minorities and people of color uh, much more than whites. Uh, and it's interesting that now that, uh, uh, you know, the drug of choice is opioids, which is more of a white drug than a uh, than a uh, minority drug, uh, that all of a sudden uh, the drug wars seem to have receded a little bit. Uh, so, you know, we have to recognize that there is inherent racism throughout not just our criminal justice system, but throughout our society. And it affects it affects uh, the criminal justice system just as it does every other system. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. With David S. Rudolph, whose book, American Injustice Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System, is published by Custom House, which is a division of HarperCollins. He's the co-host of the award-winning podcast, Abuse of Power. He's taught at the University of North Carolina School of Law, Duke University School of Law, and the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I opened my introduction to the show by citing the case of Charles Ray Finch. What happened in that case? You know, Charles Ray Finch is one of the few cases that I have handled where there was actually uh, a decision made to frame an innocent person. Uh, and it was done because the local sheriff in Wilson County, North Carolina, which was a rural county in eastern North Carolina, was corrupt. And he was on the take for protecting prostitution and gambling and drugs and uh, thefts from trucks. Uh, and the actual perpetrator of the murder that Charles Ray Finch was convicted of uh, worked at a motel that the sheriff was protecting uh, where there was a prostitution ring. And so that person knew all about the corruption. 
And, and when that person committed a murder, uh, the police, the sheriff's office knew that if they arrested him for that, that he had evidence that would, in essence, expose their corruption. Uh, and so he had leverage over the sheriff's department in a way that most citizens don't. And as a result of that, uh, rather than prosecuting him, uh, the local sheriff and his chief deputy uh, arranged a lineup that was completely suggestive. Uh, the eyewitness had described the perpetrator as wearing a three-quarter length black coat, uh, no other real description given. Uh, they brought Charles Ray Finch into the lineup. Uh, they put a three-quarter length black coat on him. Uh, none of the other seven people in that lineup had that coat, had any coat. Uh, and uh, lo and behold, the eyewitness pointed to him as the perpetrator. <laughs> Based on that testimony and that testimony alone, he was convicted. He was sentenced to death. Uh, and his death sentence was vacated because the Supreme Court, in the year after he was convicted, found the North Carolina death penalty statute unconstitutional. In fact, eight other prisoners on death row in North Carolina were exonerated, but none of them were white and all involved witness perjury or false accusation. Does that happen often? Well, sure, it happens often. You know, I, I mean, and it doesn't just happen in North Carolina. Uh, and, you know, with Charles Ray Finch, uh, the problem was that he sat there without any way of proving his innocence until the Duke Innocence Project in 2002 started up and took on his case. Uh, and they were able to find the pictures of the lineups uh, that showed how uh, suggestive they were. Uh, and based on that evidence, uh, we're able to exonerate Mr. Finch uh, and uh, get him out of prison. Unfortunately, within three years after being released, uh, he passed away last week uh, at the age of 83. Well, he'd been in prison a long time, pretty much the, the major part of his life. I, yes. Uh, I yes, did from, the show, from 40 to, to 82. I did a show some years back with members of the Central Park Five who'd been convicted of a rape they hadn't committed and, and served serious jail time. And Donald Trump, who was then uh, just a real estate guy, had, took a, had taken a full-page ad in the New York Times calling for them to be given the death penalty. Well, I'll, I'll one-up you on that. In the 1990s, uh, Justice Scalia, in an opinion upholding the death penalty, pointed as an example to a North Carolina case in which two half-brothers had been convicted and sentenced to death for a horrendous crime on a six-year-old girl. And he basically said in that opinion, hey, putting these people to death with a lethal injection uh, pales in comparison to what they did to that little girl. And that was his rationale for why the death penalty was not cruel and unusual punishment. So now we flash, flash forward 30 years those two people have been exonerated, they've been pardoned, and they sue the police officers who set them up, and a jury in North Carolina just awarded them $76 million. Wow. For but the Scalia doesn't have to pay any of that. No, Scalia doesn't, and unfortunately, he wasn't even alive to hear uh, how wrong he was. But what, what more do you, say, do you need to say about the death penalty than that these people, including Charles Ray Finch and these two brothers, 
we're on death row and we're stone cold innocent. Well, in the case of the Central Park Five, didn't a number of the jockers confess to the crime, although they hadn't committed it? Oh, and that happens all the time. Uh, again, in the book, there's a there's a description of a case out of Asheville, North Carolina, where a young black man uh, uh, from Detroit charged with a murder uh, in a rural North Carolina county uh, facing an all white jury uh, ended up uh, pleading guilty to manslaughter. All of his co-defendants, much like the uh, Central, Central Park Five, uh, had confessed and pointed the finger at him. Uh, he was offered a plea. He took the plea. Uh, and again, 10 years later, it turned out that another person confessed to the murder to a DEA agent. Uh, and even then, Mr. Mr. Wilkinson wasn't released until we were able to prove that he had been set up, that the evidence against him was completely fabricated. Uh, and and again, you know, it, this happens all the time. And people say, well, I would never confess to something that I didn't do. I would never plead guilty to something I didn't do. But, you know, if you're in that situation, you're a young black man from Detroit and you're in a rural North Carolina county and you're facing an all white jury and it's a death penalty case and your co-defendants have all made false statements against you to save themselves and are going to be testifying. Uh, it's a little bit hard to say I would never do what he did. Uh, you know, you have to put yourself in the places of these people who end up making statements and entering guilty pleas uh, to avoid much more serious consequences. Mm. And that's what happened with the Central Park Five? Absolutely. Even though they had DNA evidence about another man, the man who actually was the rapist. Well, because the police were ignoring that. They had a theory. And they were you ignoring know, that the, uh, the, uh, what, what the, the, the victim was saying. The police settle on a theory, and especially when there's a public outcry uh, and they're under pressure to solve it, uh, they get locked into that theory. Uh, and it's just very, very hard to dislodge it once it's, as I said, on the train tracks. You know, it's rolling and, and you know, they don't want to admit that they made a mistake and maybe let the real perpetrator off. As you've pointed out, systemic racism has an impact on all areas of the criminal justice system. How much of that involves a defendant's access to a good legal representation? Well, I think that's more a question of poverty than it is racism. Um, uh, of course, the two obviously go hand in hand in our in our culture, in our society. Uh, but, you know, access to adequate legal uh, representation is really a function of economics. Uh, and uh, if you're poor and white living in Appalachia, uh, you have just as much trouble having adequate legal representation as if you're black and poor and living in rural Georgia. Uh, so uh, it's not necessarily a question of race per se. It's just that uh, obviously people of color, generally speaking, uh, are much less well off uh, than people who are not of color. And, and that uh, reflects itself in the results in the criminal justice system. 
I did a, a show a while back about the number of cases that public defenders are assigned. How is it possible for them to provide proper representation when they have so many cases to handle? They can't. You know, I was a public defender in the South Bronx when I started my career. <clears throat> and I would have so many cases uh, that, you know, you sort of do triage. So, you know, I'd pick up 10 or 12 cases in night court. And as I picked them up, I would sort of characterize them. You know, these three cases, they're going to all plead out. They're going to get plea bargains and, and they're going to just take them because they already have a record and they're not going to sit around. And then these cases, uh, you know, uh, these are our cases that the DA is going to dismiss. And so you end up focusing on the cases where you think you can make a difference. Uh, and then that gets carried forward because you walk into court and you have five clients and there's one DA mm. uh, and, and you want to make your best pitch for each one of them. Uh, but you sort of realize, you know, you only have so many bullets that you can that you can use on your argument. Uh, and so, you know, when you start using your ammunition for one client, uh, you realize that you really can't go to bat quite as strongly for the others. And so there's this this struggle uh, that I would go through where I felt like I was, in, in essence, favoring one client to get this person who might, you know, might be a college student who, you know, <laughs> really needed to get his life back together, uh, as opposed to this other person uh, who had dropped out of school, you know, in the sixth grade and wasn't going anywhere anyway. And so where where am I going to put the efforts that I can make given the resources or the lack of resources that I have. And so you're doing this sort of triage. It's sort of like, you know, saving lives. <laughs> Which life can you save here? Uh, and, and that's where you put your, your efforts. And I think that's what public defenders are faced with all the time. Well, are governments uh, doing anything to, to try to attract more public defenders and pay competitive wages? No. <laughs> you know, uh, public defenders and, and, and criminal defendants don't have a really large lobbying voice in Albany or in Washington or in any other state capital. Uh, you know, w we are always sort of uh, the last to be funded. Uh, you know, DAs and police get funded. And then if there's some a little bit left over, then they'll they'll throw some money towards the public defenders. It's just not a priority in our in our system of justice. And, and hopefully, you know, people reading the book will understand that we need to do more because every time a innocent person is convicted, it means that the perpetrator has gotten yeah. off and that perpetrator is out there committing additional crimes. So it is in everybody's best interest to minimize, if not eliminate wrongful convictions, because what they lead to are people who committed crimes being free to uh, commit them again. My guest is David S. Rudolph, who's written a book called American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System, published by Custom House. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. In a number of uh, recent cases, it was pointed out that there were very few people of color on the juries. So what's the impact of systemic racism on jury selection? Uh, well, it's huge. You know, um, 
there was a study done in, in North Carolina uh, on the numbers of black jurors who were challenged for cause compared to white jurors. Mm. Uh, and there is absolutely no doubt that especially when a defendant is black uh, and the victim is white, uh, that prosecutors exercise their peremptory challenges. Those are the challenges they can use mm -hmm. without stating any reason to eliminate jurors of color. Uh, I think it's based on stereotypes. It's based on uh, implicit bias and racism. Uh, but it happens in every courtroom in America every day. Uh, it just goes on. And indeed, there's a really famous case out of Mississippi where the Supreme Court reversed a conviction, I, I think, five times uh, for uh, misconduct in jury selection until finally they, they not just reversed it, but threw the case out. Uh, and so the, these are problems that now are they greater in the South? Absolutely. They're greater in the South. You know, in the North, you don't have quite as much racism uh, in the selection of jurors. Uh, but uh, but it happens all over the country. Your final chapter is titled Who Killed Shadow Holloman? Yeah. Uh, and, and that's uh, that's the result of. Uh, the case of Charles Ray Finch, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he was he was convicted of killing uh, Shadow Holloman uh, and spent all those years in prison. Uh, and we believe that the real perpetrator was this fellow who worked at the mm -hmm. uh, Forest Inn Motor Court uh, where the prostitution ring was being protected by the sheriff. Uh, and and we try to bring that story sort of to an end uh, by showing that. Again, when an innocent person is convicted, the guilty person goes free because that person was never prosecuted for that murder and ended up uh, living uh, his life on the outside, uh, whereas Ray ended up living his entire life inside the walls of a prison. Your epilogue is titled Roots of Resistance. <laughs> what are the roots of resistance? Well, you know, uh, when I was in fifth grade, Leonard, uh, I actually uh, uh, challenged uh, my teacher for throwing my sneakers into a trash bin because I hadn't picked them up quite enough, uh, quite fast enough, uh, and uh, marched over to the trash bin and, uh, and picked them out and was sent to the uh, principal's office. Uh, and uh, my parents were called in and they needed to have me evaluated for why I was so... Uh, uh, unwilling to recognize the authority of the teacher to do whatever she wanted. I felt like it was my property and she couldn't, she couldn't just take it and throw it away. So uh, I guess there's a part of me that it's just sort of built into my DNA. Uh, but then, you know, as I was growing up in, in the sixties and seventies, you know, we had Vietnam, uh, we had all those protests. We had Kent state, we had Jackson State, you know, uh, where students were killed at both universities. Uh, we had Watergate. Uh, we had John Mitchell, the attorney general of the United States, uh, being indicted for uh, conspiracy to obstruct justice while I was in law school. Spiro uh, and, so, and so, you know, all of that sort of combines, I think, to to cause a, a person to really question 
the legitimacy of governmental power uh, and the authority of government uh, and uh, and the sort of the the abuse of governmental power uh, by people in those positions of authority. And I think in large measure that those were the roots of, of my resistance. But, but when we have very little time left, if the goal uh, is to put someone behind bars who committed a, the crime, why is there so much resistance to establishing ways to make sure that the real criminal gets caught? You know, I think I think you need to, to ask another guest about that. But my take on it is... Is this a, a question for a psychologist rather than for a lawyer? Well, maybe so, uh, because the truth of the matter is that that we all really share the same goal. If you if you really, you know, dig deep enough, the goal is to make sure that the guilty are dealt with and the innocent are protected. I, I mean, it's as simple as that. Uh, you know, we none of us want to be at the mercy of people who are willing to commit crimes, uh, but also none of us want to be at the mercy of a government uh, that is really not paying attention when innocence is at stake. Uh, and so there's a balance there. Uh, and I think that uh, in large part, uh, when people become afraid, uh, as you know, happened in the in the 70s and 80s with the drug wars and now with you know, terrorism on the rise, both domestic and, and I guess international, uh, people become afraid and they value uh, protection over liberty. Um, and, uh, you know, when I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said, if you if if people begin to value security over liberty, they will end up with neither. Mm. Uh, and I think that often happens. Now, in just a, a minute or so that we have left, we mentioned that you are featured in the Netflix documentary, The Staircase. And uh, considering all of the cases <laughs> that you cite in this book, and we haven't t uh, dealt with all of them. Why this one in particular? You mean why did it get selected by by uh, the yeah. documentary filmmaker? As though, yeah. Well, uh, you know, the documentary filmmaker uh, had done a, a uh, award winning film, had won an Academy Award for a similar film about a public defender in Florida, and this filmmaker was interested in understanding how the criminal justice system worked in the United States when someone was had the means to defend themselves. And so uh, they, they approached me and I allowed them the kind of access that I'm not sure any lawyer has ever allowed mm -hmm. another film crew uh, in a case. Uh, and there's lots of reasons for that, which uh, we don't have time really to discuss. And there were lots of protections that I built in uh, in order to do that. Uh, but the staircase, as a result, gives viewers a view of what criminal defense lawyers do and how we go about our jobs and why we do what we do and of the criminal justice system and of the flaws in the criminal justice system that I think is pretty unprecedented. Uh, I'm not aware of another documentary that takes the viewer inside sort of the, the defense lawyer's uh, job the way the staircase does. Well, your and, book and does it, and we've run out of time. 
But I want to thank you, David S. Rudolph. The book is American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System, published by Custom House, which is a division of HarperCollins. Uh, Mr. Rudolph is the co-host of the award-winning podcast, Abuse of Power. He's taught at the University of North Carolina School of Law, Duke University School of Law, and the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. And it has been my great pleasure to have him on our show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Spotify, the Apple channel, and everywhere else that you can get a podcast. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to consider supporting WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. Uh, the important thing is that you step up and show your support for Leonard Lopate at Large on the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We, we don't take ads or foundation grants, and that allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on this show by going online right now. Again, it's give to WBAI.org, or you can call 212-209-2950 to play your part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again on Monday when our favorite language experts, Catherine and Ross Petras, will join us once again. Have a great weekend.